Welcome back to another edition of the ASAP Equal Podcast. I'm your host as always, Dr. Jason Woods. We are continuing our discussion on stroke and, and all things relating to it. And today we've got Dr. Bruce Lowe, who's the chief in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Centara Norfolk General Hospital and a professor of emergency medicine at Eastern Virginia Medical School. And he is here specifically to talk about ICH scoring systems and their use in prognostication. We're not going to dive into each scoring system in depth. So I'd suggest as you go through this, you go ahead and look up each individual scoring system. The easiest way to do this, I think, is one of the online calculators. I tend to use MDCalc, but any of them will do, and it will give you each of the individual components so you can see what goes into them as we, we discuss a number of different systems. All right, Dr. Lowe, the mic is yours. First off, I have no disclosures to disclose. So in your next shift, this is your first patient that you see. You have a 57-year-old male, only history is hypertension, He's a Lauren Orient times three, his GCS is 15, and his complaint is right arm weakness for the past three hours. Because of his symptoms, you activate your stroke alert process, goes to CT, gets a head CT, which shows a right intracerebral hemorrhage. Your next patient is an 83-year-old female comes in who's obtunded, unresponsive. On history, you know that she's on a Pixaban for atrial fibrillation. You send her to the CT scan for a head CT, and it comes back, she has a large left frontal hemorrhage. You go back, you talk to the patient and the patient's family, kind of give them an update about what's going on and diagnosis. And the question is, well, how bad is it? And they also want to know, gosh, what should we expect? What's the prognosis? Are they going to get better? As we go through these objectives, we're going to focus on two main things. The first one is understanding how to calculate a prognostic score in patients with interest readable hemorrhages. The second thing is, once we have the prognostic scores, how do we utilize them in discussing for dispositions for patients with intracerebral hemorrhages? First off, a little bit of introduction. Intracerebral hemorrhages are a relative minority of all strokes, about 10% of all strokes. However, in comparison to ischemic strokes, the morbidity and mortality is much, much higher. About 15 to 23% of the people who have intracerebral hemorrhages will deteriorate within the first hour of arrival in, into the emergency departments. In some studies, mortality is up to 40% at one month for diagnosis of intracerebral hemorrhage. And we know that if you do have an intracerebral hemorrhage, you have a relatively high rate of disability, especially in comparison for patients who have an ischemic stroke. And we know that if you do have an intracerebral hemorrhage, it's important not only to identify it quickly, but aggressive early management to try to improve their outcomes. During this talk, we are not going to focus on aggressive management or management options, but really going to focus on prognostication and scoring systems. In 2015, the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, updated their ICH guidelines, and in it, they have this recommendation in terms of diagnosis and assessment. Baseline severity score should be performed as part of the initial evaluation of patients with intracerebral hemorrhages. And it gives us a class one recommendation. And that's important because the class one recommendation, what they're essentially saying is, we should absolutely do this on every patient that comes in with an intracerebral hemorrhage. If we have all these scoring systems, we are familiar with the NI show scale. Why don't we just use the NI show scale and why don't we talk about prognostic scoring tools for intracerebral hemorrhage? Well, there's several reasons why that is. The first reason is the original development and study of the NI show scale was really focused on ischemic strokes only. The second issue with the NI show scale is a lot of people who do have intracerebral hemorrhages oftentimes have altered level of consciousness or depressed level of consciousness. And so when you try to apply or try to do the NI show scale, oftentimes it becomes much more difficult 
and the accuracy may be less so compared to those who've had ischemic strokes. Now, there are some relatively recent articles, studies that looked at the NIHO scale in terms of a prediction tool for outcomes for those who have intratubule hemorrhages, but they're relatively small studies. They seem promising, but not quite ready for prime time. Before we talk about the different scoring tools, I just want to talk a little bit about what makes an ideal scoring tool. So there are a couple of things we want to think about when looking at different scoring tools. First of all, is it easy to use? So if there are multiple components, if it's confusing about exactly what they're asking or we're trying to put into it, it's not going to be easy to use and you're unlikely going to use it in your day-to-day -day practice. You also want to have a scoring tool that uses objective criterion. Is it a yes or no type answer? Topics or criterion that are subjective oftentimes uh, run into problems where the reliability at how you score may differ from person to person. We also want to make sure that an ideal scoring tool that is easily reproducible so that if I'm evaluating and scoring a patient, it's going to be the exact same score as if you were to evaluate and score the exact same patient. And lastly, and probably most importantly, is the scoring tool needs to be accurate. You could have an easy tool to use with objective criteria and very reproducible, but if it doesn't tell you the answers that you want it to, it is not worthwhile to utilize. There's over a dozen ICH scoring tools that are out there, and these are probably the four of the most common ones that you see. The ICH score, which we'll talk about more later on. There's the modified ICH score. There's the ICHGS score, and there's something called the FUNC score. All these scoring tools either predict or was studied to predict mortality or functional outcome or functional independence. It turns out that a lot of these scoring tools not only have been externally validated, but also it turns out that they can be used to determine the opposite or the other outcome also. So if it's a mortality outcome tool, not uncommonly, it's also been studied for functional outcome or functional independence. If it's a tool that's measured what's the likelihood for a good functional outcome or functional independence, it's also been studied for mortality. So we're talking about the ICH score or the intratribal hemorrhage score. There's five elements within the ICH score. And the ICH score originally was designed to predict what your 30-day mortality rates would be. If you look at the original paper based on the ICH score, you can see kind of what the mortality would be. If you scored a zero, your mortality was 0% or it would be very, very low. If you scored a five or six, your 30-day mortality would be 100%. And ex multiple studies have externally validated the scoring system and have shown that the scores are fairly closely related and what the outcome from the original study. The first element is the GCS or Glasgow Coma Scale. You guys are familiar with this in the trauma world for our trauma patients. There's basically three main components for the GCS score, which is the verbal response, eye opening, and motor response. And you can see for the IC score, it breaks it down into three separate categories. For GCS score of 13 to 15, so that's somebody who's essentially normal or near normal in terms of their mental status, you get zero points. On the opposite end of the spectrum, if you have a GCS of three or four, so that means you are obtunded, you are barely responding at all, you get two points. And everything else in between gets one. Now, some of you have probably seen in the literature over the last couple of years some controversy in terms of the GCS score and the reliability or reproducibility of the scoring. And some of the scoring issues and controversies have to do with the eye-opening and, and verbal response in particular. And typically, the areas or ranges where there's controversy has to do with the middle part of the scoring. Well, the good news is for the ICH score is it looks at the two extreme ends, so normal and near normal, or the other end, which is severely obtunded or unresponsive. And everything else in the middle, 
doesn't really matter in terms of the actual score. So if I were to score a patient and they got GCS of eight, and another physician were to evaluate the same patient and score them and they got GCS of 10, they still get the same one point in the ICH score. So that controversy, although it exists for the absolute score, for the purpose of the ICH score, it probably matters very little. The next component is the age. Age greater than or equal to 80 gets you one point. Age less than 80 gets you zero points. The next element is the ICH volume. So you have your head CT, you see the ICH on the CAT scan. In the ideal world, that image would get 3D volume rendered and the computer would automatically calculate the exact volume to give you a precise exact number. And fortunately, most hospital and health systems don't have that technology as of yet. And so they're oftentimes using other formulas to measure or estimate what the ICH volume is. Probably the most common one that's utilized out there by radiology is the formula ABC divided by two. And essentially what that does is it assumes that the hemorrhage is shape of an ellipsoid and you take the longest diameter on the axial cuts that you take in the perpendicular, the longest width, that's your A and B, and you multiply that by C, which is the height of the uh, hemorrhage. And for the ICH score, if you have a volume of 30 cc's or greater, you get one point. If it's less than 30 cc's, you get zero. The next component of the ICH score is, is there a presence of intraventricular hemorrhage? So with large ICHs, they can fill into the intraventricular space and you get intraventricular extension. And this is important because this oftentimes is prognostically not a good thing. You're concerned about outflow obstruction of the CSF. Uh, you get increase in pressures as well as risk of hydrocephalus. So if you have an intraventricular hemorrhage, you get one point. If you don't have an intraventricular hemorrhage, you get zero. And the last component of the ICH score is, is the bleed in the location infratentorial or not? If you go back and remember your anatomy, back from medical school, you have that dura of the tentorium. And the tentorium and that dura actually separates the part of your brain that's the cerebellum and the brainstem from the rest of your brain. And this is important because the cerebellum area, if you remember, that's the posterior fossa. It's a very small area, very tight space. So if you add a mass-occupying lesion, such as a, a bleed or a hemorrhage, there isn't a lot of room or tolerance for that space to go in there without increasing intracranial pressures. So on the CT scan for the ICH score, if you do have on the location of the hemorrhage, if it's infratentorial, and that is if it's in the cerebellum or the brainstem, you get one point. If you don't, you get zero. So when you look at the ICH score and the different components of it, it assumes that each of those components are relatively equal in weight in terms of determining your likelihood for outcome or your third-day mortality. But the reality is each of those components actually have a different relative risk in terms of predicting your third-day mortality. Now, Dr. Lowe, we're not going to talk about each individual scoring system in quite as much depth, but I do want to see if you can tell us maybe what's similar and what's different between the four scoring systems that you mentioned up top. And just as a reminder for the listeners, those four were the ICH score, the modified ICH score, the ICH grading system, and the FUNC score. But if you look at the different elements between these different scores, you'll see that a lot of similarities. Across the board, you'll see that in the original ICH score, the ICH grading scale, and the FUNC score they use GCS, the Glasgow Coma Scale, as one of the components. Now, there's a different breakdown of how they do the scores in the pointing system, but they use the GCS. Interestingly, you'll see the modified ICH uses the NIHO scale as one of the components for the modified ICH score. All four of them uses hematoma volume, but does have some differentiation on some of the scores, at least, based on the total volume as well as the location. Age is a component. 
for all four of the scoring tools. And then intraventricular hemorrhage or intraventricular extension is a component for three of the four scoring tools. The FUNC score does not use intraventricular extension, but does use cognitive impairment as one of the elements determined functional outcome. So as you can see with these four scores, very similar in the questions and the components of them. So what about other factors? So we talked about that. They're relatively simple, relatively straightforward, easy to use, but clearly there are other factors that will determine outcomes. And one of them is anticoagulation use. And I think you've all seen in our emergency departments, more and more patients are on anticoagulation, whether they're on warfarin or they're on DOAC, becoming quite common. And so we know that those who are on anticoagulation, if they do have an intracerebral hemorrhage, we know more often than likely that they'll typically have larger ICH volumes compared to those who don't have anticoagulation. We also know those who are on anticoagulation, they're much more likely to have hematoma expansion. And we also know they're much more likely to have intraventricular extension if they're on anticoagulation. And then just using anticoagulation by itself, we know that it is a risk for higher morbidity and mortality for those with intracerebral hemorrhages compared to those who do not have intracerebral hemorrhages. So why not incorporate that as part of one of the ICH scoring tools? Well, in this particular study, they actually did try that. They actually incorporated anticoagulation as an additional factor to the original ICH score. And in short, what they found was, yes, anticoagulation usage was an independent factor for worse outcome, but when they incorporated it into the score itself, the actual score performance didn't really alter all that much. It was pretty a minimal value in terms of uh, altering the numbers. So what they concluded was, gosh, you know, yes, it's an independent risk factor, but in terms of improving the characteristics of the score, it really didn't do much. And so they didn't recommend that anticoagulation be a part of a separate or different scoring system in addition to some of the other scoring systems that are utilized. There's a number of articles that we discuss in here, and those are all in the bibliography. The one that Dr. Lowe is specifically referring to here is titled, Predicting Prognosis of Intracerebral Hemorrhage Performance of CH Score is Not Improved by Adding Oral Anticoagulant Use. And the lead author on that is Rick Huben. What about other risk factors? So clearly comorbidities. So we know people who are end-stage renal disease who are on dialysis, uh, if they have an intracerebral hemorrhage, they are much more likely to have a bad outcome or death compared to those who are not on dialysis, those who have end-stage cardiomyopathy, those with new acute renal failure, clearly at higher risk for bad outcomes compared to those who do not. We know that people who have previous strokes, especially previous intracerebral hemorrhages, they oftentimes will have a much higher increased risk of mortality compared to those who do not have a previous history of that. If they have a history or recent uses of illicit drug use, such as cocaine or methamphetamine, we also know that based on the literature that their prognosis, their chance for mortality is much higher compared to those who have intracellular hemorrhages and who have not recently used cocaine or methamphetamine or other illicit drug use. And then of course, what is their functional status pre-morbid before they had the intracerebral hemorrhage? We know that those patients who are not, who have poor functional outcomes prior to having the event or the intracerebral hemorrhage, we know that they tend to do a lot worse in general from a mortality standpoint compared to those who do not. So these are other risk factors that are not accounted for in a lot, many of these intracerebral uh, hemorrhage scoring tools but also things that you should consider, at least when trying to figure out what their outcome or likelihood is going to be. We didn't want this lecture to just tell you what scoring systems exist. To me, the place where many of these can go awry or where people struggle to use them is actually putting them into practice in the real world. Dr. Lowe, can you talk about limitations or tips for using them in clinical practice? So I kind of alluded to before, there are limitations with the prognostic scores that are not perfect like any other score. 
However, it's very important to understand that what it can and can't tell you. What it does tell you is that it's going to give you an idea of what their outcome is going to be based on probability and previous studies. However, it's only one element, and no score in itself should ever be used in isolation. The second thing is none of these scores should ever dictate what treatment or interventions the patient should get. So that really requires a much more broader discussion in terms of what's available at your hospital in terms of resources, what the patient condition has, and what the comorbidities are in making that decision with a specialist. So use the prognostic scores in conjunction with everything else, right? So we want to know what's their baseline neurostatus. Again, if it turns out the patient was a nursing home, severely demented, bedridden, doesn't walk, has a poor quality of life to begin with, we know that if they suffer an intrusible hemorrhage, no matter what the score is, they're not going to get any better than that. In fact, likely they'll be much worse. And this is very different compared to the 20-something-year-old who may be young, healthy, without any other medical problems with a similar type of clinical picture. You also want to know what the comorbidities are. And then probably the most important thing, and we do this all the time, is what does the patient want or a family? Having that conversation and introducing those facts into the discussion to help kind of guide what the treatment plan is going to be for the patient. The AHA, ASA, in their 2015 ICH guidelines did talk about this in terms of outcome prediction. And in their recommendation, they wrote this, aggressive care early after ICH onset and postponement of new DNR orders until at least the second full day of hospitalization is probably recommended. They go on to say current prognostic models for individual patients early after ICH are biased by failure to account for the influence of withdrawal of support and early DNR orders. DNR status should not limit appropriate medical or surgical interventions unless otherwise explicitly indicated. So what the AHA is trying to say is it's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we do this prognostic scoring and we know that the 30 mortality may be very, very high, we may be convincing ourselves and patients to say, you know what? Probability is going to be very bad. Chances are it's going to be a bad outcome, likely death. And in fact, we probably should just move to comfort care or DNR right off the bat. And what they're saying is, hold on a minute, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, and that may or may not be the right thing to do. And as I mentioned before, it's really about taking the, all those different elements together, having that conversation, because a person with a large hemorrhage who's an 80-some-year-old, 90-some-year-old nursing home, severely demented patient, it's going to be a very different conversation for the 20-something, previously healthy, very functional person having the same diagnosis. So think about not pulling the trigger too much and not automatically making somebody a DNR or comfort care purely based on a probability scoring tool that shows high likelihood of a bad outcome. All right, let's bring this home. Dr. Lowe, can you go back to those patients that you mentioned at the very beginning of this lecture and tell us what you would do or what the prognostic scoring systems would say about them? So let's go back to the two patients that we talked about in the beginning. The first patient was our 57-year-old male. Again, only history was hypertension, lorinoid times three, GCS is 15. The only symptoms of the right arm weakness. It's got the intrusible hemorrhage, as you see on the screen. The radiologist uses the formula ABC divided by two, and the size of the hemorrhage is four cc's. So what's the ICH score? So we know the age is less than 80, so this person gets zero points for that. GCS is 15, we'll get zero points for that. The volume of ICH is less than 30, also we'll get zero points for that. There's no signs of intraventricular extension, so we'll get zero points. And this is not a cerebellar or brainstem bleed, right? So this is a supertentorial bleed. So the patient will get zero points with that. And so we know for the ICH score, this person will get a zero. And we know based on the data, the mortality is 0% or very, very low. So when discussing with the patient, not only the diagnosis, but what to expect, 
you could say, gosh, Mr. Jones, good news. Well, bad news. You have to, you have an interstitial hemorrhage. We'll need to make sure the hospital kind of manage that. But the good news is based on prognostic scoring, we know that your 30 day mortality or your risk of death is very, very low. So we'll keep you in the hospital. We'll see what we can do to help your symptoms. We'll get physical therapy. We'll get rehab, but your outcome likely is going to be very good. All things considered. Let's talk about the second patient here. So the 83-year-old female came in obtunded. GCS was five. She's on anticoagulation for AFib. The radiologist, again, measures the volume using the ABC divided by two. and gets 42 milliliters of blood. If you were to calculate the ICH score, she is above the age of 80. So she gets one point for that. Her GCS is five. So number five to 12, she gets one point for that. She does have signs of intraventricular extension. So she gets one point for that. Her volume is greater than 30 cc's or 30 milliliters, so she'll get one point for that. However, because it's far low, so it's not in the infratorial region, right? So it's not a cerebellar, it's not a brainstem bleed, she gets zero points for that. So her ICH score is four. We know based on the original data, her third-day mortality is very high at 94%. Doesn't include anticoagulation that she's on, the apixaban for atrial fibrillation. And so with that kind of fudge factor, you know that her mortality is probably even going to be higher than that. So that at least that helps shapes, shapes the discussion when you talk with the family. Gosh, yes, I'm sorry, your grandmother had a large interstitial hemorrhage. Here it is on CT. We know based on scoring that her risk of death is very, very high. And from there, you can talk about what the goals of care will be. Do they ever talk about, do they have a living will? Do they ever talk about uh, what would happen if they were to have a medical emergency and what kind of procedure, the life-saving procedure they would do or not do in her case. And that way it can help shape your discussion with the family and oftentimes help with disposition. In our institution, when you have somebody like this, we will have that discussion in the emergency department as emergency physicians, giving them not only the risk score, but looking at the total picture, right? The holistic view of the patient and with the family make a decision, do we pursue transfer and to see a specialist? Or is it such that based on the patient's wishes, family's wishes, what their ideals are, again, goals of care, do we keep them locally and make them comfortable in DNR? So in conclusion, if you have somebody with an interstitial hemorrhage, you should use some sort of prognostic scoring system. The ICH score is probably the most commonly one used, and it's relatively easy and straightforward and reproducible. Realizing that all prognostic scoring tools have limitations and that you have to look at it from a holistic view as well as other factors that go into it in terms of disposition. But it can be used to help drive discussion with patients and family in terms of what to expect and as well as potential goals of care. That's going to be the end of our time today. Thank you, Dr. Lowe, for being here. And thank you, listeners, for taking the time to listen to us today. I'm Dr. Jason Woods. You can find the rest of the ASAP Equal series at the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine website, www.aliem.com, or at the ASAP website, www.acep.org backslash equal. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at jason.woods.md at gmail.com. Definitely love to hear from you. If you've got any suggestions or things you want to hear about, we want to know. 